Last week we covered chapter 2 of Galatians, verses 1 through 10, and uh, that covered the events at the Jerusalem church this week, verses 11 through 21, Lord willing, which covers the events at the Gentile church. Now, as we've said, Paul started this autobiographical narration all the way back in chapter 1, and it continues through to the end of chapter 2. This narration, of course, supports his theme. We know his theme, right? What's Paul's theme? Can you help me with it? For the entire book. Commit to Christ. All right, I got a little worried there. Commit to Christ. Right, all right. Good, and what are we not going to commit to, according to Paul? Not the law. Now, we're not going to ask Dwayne this because he gets confused on this one, so it's, which is okay. Or we will find ourselves with division. That's right. We don't, we'll find ourselves with division. I've been wanting to do that and I kept forgetting. Oh, that's good. Yeah, division. And we'll find ourselves minus. How about that? Is that better? How about that? Division? Yeah, you're probably right. I don't know how to do disaster. So, whoop. What's the last one? Disaster. I already told you. All right. Division and disaster. All right. Now, so since he's um, summing it all up here, how many of you were, uh, were not here last week? All right. That was a good choice. All right. Uh, to be here this week versus last week. So uh, this, is, this is the one you want to be at because Paul's going to sum the whole thing up for us. He's going to make all, this entire narration make sense. Remember, he is talking to the Galatian people about some things that happened in the past. He's given this full narration to lay this whole thing out by way, uh, again, of narration. He, uh, the first two chapters, as I see it, are narration. Second two chapters are education. The last three are application. Paul likes to uh, alliterate, not me. That's the way Paul did it. If you, if you could read Greek and hillbilly like I can, it would all work out for you like it does for me. So he, he's going to wrap up this narration portion here for us and, uh, and try to make sense um, uh, of it all. Well, he will make sense of it all. The goal is for Chris Brown to try to make sense of it all, which is a challenge. So, uh, as, as you will recall, in this narration, he explains that he's been saved in Damascus. He goes off to Arabia. Very good. Then back to Damascus. And this, we're told, is about a, a period of Three years. Wow, you folks are right on it. And then he goes up to, which looks down to us, but he goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Wow. And then after a few days there, about 15 days, um, (laughs) about 15 days there, he's then sent back home to the province of Cilicia. That's right. And spend somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 years there. All of this, he's not just lollygagging, laying out on the beach and whatnot. 
uh, he is doing evangelistic work. Um, and so then uh, someone comes to Cilicia and, uh, and says, hey, I need your help. Would you come with me to Antioch? And that would have been Barnabas. Barnabas. Nicely done. And uh, he goes to serve there and uh, is one of the leaders, uh, well qualified, clearly. And then a prophet shows up and his name is Agabus. And uh, this prophet reveals some coming hardship in Judea. So he... Barnabas and someone else he drags along up to Jerusalem to provide the relief is a man by the name of Titus. Yep, you were thinking it. You just didn't have the courage to blurt it out. They all go up and make a visit to uh, Jerusalem to bring the relief. And this is what we read about last week and uh, the, the, the week that you were not here. And so uh, they go up there and uh, Paul lays his cards on the table and uh, regarding his 10 years of evangelism, and uh, he really puts the issue on the table of circumcision. And as far as Paul's concerned, boom, the, the issue is settled. It's a done deal. And every Bible teacher knows how this is. You've gotten up, you've settled it, you've put it out there, you've laid it on the line, you've let the folks have it with your Billy Sunday stance, and you've done the deal, and within three or four days, someone comes and asks you a question, and you go, boy, you just didn't get a thing I said last week, did you? And uh, clearly, from the next story, he thought he had settled the whole thing. Everybody is one in Christ, whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Paul thinks, man, this is it. The kingdom of God is flying forward. Uh, Titus has gone with him. Did Titus get circumcised? Nope. Did the church at Jerusalem say he should get uh, circumcised? Yes or no? (laughs) You weren't so convinced, were you? (laughs) No. It's been settled. He drugged Titus up there and we just figure they talked about it and didn't go any further than that. We won't. Anyway, let your imagination roam. And so they said, nope, doesn't have to be done. Everything's settled. Paul's back in Antioch. Everything's fine and dandy. Peter shows up. And this is where we are. Now, just to digress for a moment, um, we jump, we're going to jump ahead in a few verses here in Acts chapter 20. Paul learns better, as we'll see. Uh, and uh, he realizes that apostasy is something that... Um, and we pointed this out earlier, he's constantly dealing with uh, apostasy. And so we're going to throw that over here. We've discussed it a few times, apostasy. I, I don't know why it's misspelled with an S. should be a C as far as I'm concerned. But uh, folks messed up the English language a long time ago. Um, so Paul is... Um, uh, deals with apostasy early on in this thing, and um, I want to bring that to your attention. And um, he he really learns that this thing is not as settled as he hoped it would be. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Acts chapter twenty, much further down. Remember, this is all happening Acts chapter eleven, twelve. 13, and even there's a bit of a kerfluffle in Acts chapter 15 where it seems to be settled. But in Acts chapter 20, I want to read to you verses 28 through 31. Uh, The last time he gets to meet with the folks at uh, the elders in Ephesus, he gives them a clear, clear warning. He says to them in verse number 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, 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 <laughs> to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Hallelujah. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, wolves, who is it that wants us to uh, bust out, wants us to go back to the wrong things? Wolves, he calls them, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Did you know there were wolves that want to do that to you and I? Amazing. Paul said he figured this one out. Don't, it's going to happen. Verse 30, and from among, watch this, your own selves. Hey, excited about the good news? Wow, this is a real thing. I know when I, got, when I first got saved, I thought when I got into, in, into church, when I would show up in the army, I thought there were just rainbow and, and sunshine and everything was, was all around me. Uh, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul is saying it is certain to happen. And this is why with the Galatians, he is just letting them know this is nothing new. This is what happens. This is the battle that we are facing. All right. Now, as you look here in Galatians 2, in this latter half, beginning in verse number 11, likely if in your Bible you have two paragraphs here, and uh, we will jump right in. The first paragraph, we see Paul's confrontation with Peter. Verse number 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is amazing. He's saying that Peter was at fault. He was the one to blame. Now you think about this in this in, in verse 11 here going. If you look at verse nine through 11, this is a major transition, not only from the events uh, at the Jerusalem church to the Gentile church in Antioch, but it's a, a transition from jubilation to frustration. Look up, if you would, at verse number nine, uh, just, to, uh, just to pick up the story a little earlier. He says, and when, J- when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Can you, can you imagine the excitement of uh, Paul here? Paul's like, hey, we've made a, we've got a plan. We've made a deal. They understand where I'm coming from. I understand where they're coming from. This is great news. Jump down to verse 10, if you would. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In other words, that's why we came to Jerusalem in the first place. And if you're familiar with Paul's writings, you know, he, everywhere he went, he was like, let's help those, those suffering saints in Jerusalem. And then again, verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, but when Cephas came to Antioch, but when Cephas came to Antioch, man, I've had so many meetings like that. I talked to brother so-and-so 
But then the next day, they didn't get it. We had a plain, simple, ordinary conversation. Everything was explained. Everything was laid out. But just two days later, in other words, it's like Peter forgot everything that was discussed and agreed upon in Jerusalem. He says, I opposed him to his face. Let me quote Bill Witherington regarding the social implications of the day, which we spent a little time on last week. He writes, Paul saw the provocation of Peter's hypocrisy as so great that he had to go against the decorum and speak out. In other words, the incident at Antioch was certainly not over some minor matter as to whether or not Gentiles should wash their hands before dinner. This incident may well also suggest that Paul sees himself now, at least in regard as an apostle, as Peter's equal. For it was rare for a subordinate to ever try and shame a superior, and certainly never in public, so that they lost faith with their clientele. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine we're sitting over here in fellowship? We're all eating together. Someone walks in. I'm just going to pick on you, Steve. But I'm going to pick on Gerald because he had such a great day yesterday with Tennessee winning. And all of a sudden, someone walks in. Gerald notices it. And he goes, oop, I better get up and not sit with you anymore. And that would probably offend you. But that was nothing compared to what Peter did. It continues. But when they came, these people from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Certain men came from James. Now, does this simply mean they were from Jerusalem? Well, we know at least they were from Jerusalem. Does it mean they were directly sent by James and they represented James? Was James even aware of their visit? We don't know. What we do know is that Peter was freely fellowshipping with the Gentiles before the circumcision party showed up. And what we do know is that, is that this had happened before and Peter had been through it before. Are you familiar with the story of Cornelius? In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and company, they're all Gentiles, were, used, were saved through the work of Peter. A phenomenal work where Peter is awakened by the Spirit of God to lead these Gentiles to Christ. Peter doesn't want to do it. Peter doesn't want to go amongst these Gentiles. But it is a miraculous work. That's in Acts chapter 10. What happens in Acts chapter 11? Let me read to you. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Now we're Gentiles. Can I get an amen? amen. Now if we hear people get saved, what do we do? 
Do we rejoice or do we say, oh, me? We rejoice. Listen to what they did. Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, here's that same phrase, the circumcision party criticized him. Peter's been through this before. And they said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So Peter goes and he explains to them, look, I didn't want to go. I'm like you. I didn't want to do this. But God made it clear that something has changed. Please hear me now. This is vitally important because when you read Hebrews chapter 5, it says they are dull of hearing. It says they are refusing, in this particular context, it talks about milk and meat, it does in other places. I'm not exactly sure it's the same as in 1 Corinthians, but here in Hebrews chapter 5, it says they are refusing the meat here, purposefully. And they are refusing to understand or accept the fact that there's a change in the priesthood. Something has changed. And in this particular instance with where Peter is, God is revealing to him that something has changed. The gospel is now meant to go to the Gentiles as well, meaning the entire world. Remember, Nicodemus struggled with the very same thing in John chapter 3. And Peter says to them, look, this is what God did. I didn't have a choice in the matter. And at the very end, in verse number 18 of the story, here's what it says. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Man, isn't that good news? Man, the Jews are on board. The circumcision party is on board. But here in our story in, in uh, Antioch, we just read when they came, the circumcision party, Peter drew back, separating himself, fearing the circumcision party. It appears to me that poor Peter is getting worn down by this crowd. Anybody ever gotten worn down? Mama's. I've had it with these children. You love them to death, but you've just had about enough of them. We dads never get that way, do we? No, we go fishing. He's clearly afraid of them. The word for fear here is the word we get our English word phobia from. Has Peter developed a phobia, an irrational fear to the circumcision party? We do know that his trail grows cold in the book of Acts after this. Is this what led him from Jerusalem to Antioch in the first place, trying to get away from them? Who knows? Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So, back to Gerald. Gerald gets up and leaves. Somebody else sees Gerald. We don't know who walks in. We don't know what it might be. Steve saw it. Steve says, uh-oh, I better go too. Steve follows him. 
Man, I see Steve get up and follow. I get up and go. Dwayne, Dwayne's a rebel. I ain't going. A few other people get up and leave. It says here, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. All right. So now we're not just dealing with apostasy. Now we're also dealing with hypocrisy. My, oh my. You see, the man still bound. By the way, by the way, what's our theme? What is it again? Not the law, but what if you if you if you if you keep getting wrapped up in the law, what will it bring? And what? Disaster. What do we see happening at Antioch at this very moment? Do we see division? Do we see this church falling into disaster? That's why Paul is giving us the story. He's showing us here when the Mosaic law enters in to this fellowship, we are going to once again find division and disaster. And Paul is showing us that even at the very top levels, even with someone like Peter himself, it will bring division and disaster. Someone was sharing earlier, weren't they? If you bring in any law other than the law of Christ, we have nothing but division and disaster. Do you know anything with two heads is a monster? And Peter, we've only got one head now, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make in Hebrews chapter 5 that there is a new priesthood. It is the Lord Jesus who is our high priest. No monster here. You see, the man who is still bound by the law will continue to create division because he does not understand some basic things. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Can you read it with me? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound like what Peter was doing with these Gentiles? Mm-mm. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. Romans thirteen eight. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then we read the little part at the end there. Even Barnabas was led astray. Can you see the power of leadership at work here? Peter's fear is spreading throughout the Jewish community. Who were these Jews in Antioch? They were the ones who fled there in Acts chapter 8 over the persecution surrounding Stephen. They fled there. And now Peter shows up, someone that they look up to, someone they had served under in Acts chapter in the the early days of uh, the Jerusalem church. They fled there. Peter shows up. Peter does something. They follow in lockstep. And then we've pointed out the word 
hypocrisy. Let's add another word to there. Something that Paul has been trying to promote since the very beginning. And this is a fun word. Orthodoxy. Paul's now fighting a two-front battle. From the beginning, in his narration, he's been fighting against what? Apostasy. Now in this story, he's fighting against not just apostasy, but hypocrisy. We certainly don't believe Peter's an apostate. Can I get an amen on that? Right? We certainly don't believe that. But what does orthodoxy mean? Well, how many of you have been to an orthodontist? Been to an orthodontist? How many of you wish you had gone to an orthodontist? (laughs) That's me. All right. What kind of teeth was he trying to give you? Crooked ones or? Straight. Straight. So ortho means straight. All right. Doxy means beliefs. Here's how I remember it. Doctrine. My beliefs. Okay. In your ESV, they'll often put the word teaching. All right. So Paul is trying to give them straight beliefs. Like your orthodontist was trying to give you straight teethies, all right? And he does this. He thinks he secured it, right? Paul thinks, well, man, I've secured that. We're settled. He said, I did that in chapter 2 in the story, 1 through 10. It's all been settled. I've been to, I've been to Jerusalem. Everything's settled. Everything's straightened out. Everything's good to go. But now he's facing hypocrisy in this second one, right? In this uh, second story. That'd be 11 through 21. What's a, good, what's a good definition for hypocrisy? Let me give you a great one. James 2.18, if you want to write that down. I will show you my faith by my, by my works. See, so it's really hard to come out against uh, James, isn't it? James is on board there. I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, they match up, don't they? And so here we have these wolves. They're also called the, what did we call them a minute ago? Do you remember? Circumcision party. Yeah. Anybody remember what John calls them in, uh, in his epistle? No, that's a... That's what Paul calls them. That's right. He calls them antichrists. That's where we get that word from all today. Paul says they're a bunch of antichrists. I'm sorry, Pete, uh, John. Thank you, sir. Antichrists. He calls them something else. He calls them deceivers. He calls them false prophets. Peter, in his epistle, he calls them false teachers. Uh, oh, Paul in 2 Corinthians calls them false apostles. So they're all over the place. All right. And where it, what is our orthodoxy today? It's very simple. Paul uses the phrase over and over again. Our orthodoxy is very simple. We are in Christ. If you're in Christ, be excited about it and say amen. 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 We're in Christ. Are believing Jews in Christ? Yes or no? Yes. Are believing Gentiles in Christ? Yes or no? Okay, this is going to get tough. What about believing black folks? No? They are. What about believing Hispanics? Yes or no? Yeah, they are. What, okay, here's a tough one now. Politics is what it is. What about believing Russians? Really? 
Democrat. <laughs> okay, got to do it now. What about believing Democrats? Yes. All right. Listen. The kingdom of God rises above all the mess that goes on around us. Can I get a hearty amen? amen. And that's what Paul thought he settled early on in this th- when he went to Jerusalem. He thought they got it. He thought he could just say, look, this circumcision thing, it ain't just about circumcision. It covers the entire old covenant. We are all in Christ. We are one in Christ. And if we don't grasp this thing that we're all in one in Christ, ladies and gentlemen, then we, look, we have nothing to look forward to but division and disaster. No wonder we're in a mess. Because the truth is, we got three groups of people in Christendom today. We got those who believe it, and I hope that's the 90, I hope that's 100% of us in here. But I'm not that foolish. Then we got a group that doesn't believe it, and I've seen many of them. Boy, we love your preaching, Pastor Brown, they used to say to me, but we ain't coming back. Why? Because you, you, we don't go to church with them. I've heard that many times. And then we've got a large group of people that are like Peter was in here. They believe it, but they don't apply it. You've got to apply it, brothers and sisters. You've got to apply it, brothers and sisters. You've got to apply it, brothers and sisters. If Peter could mess up on it, you and I can mess up on it. And I'll take it a step further. You and I will mess up on it. You and I will mess up on it. You and I will mess up on it. All right, well, three of us think we will. Those of us don't think we will, will. We will. This is something, look, everywhere Paul went, he kept preaching Christ crucified. Do you know why? Because people had to be reminded over and over again that it was about Christ crucified. Why? Because we keep forgetting it's about Christ crucified. How quickly we get more excited. You brought it up about a boy, he's gone. You get, we get, we get so excited about a ball game, we are that easily caught off guard. I got excited about the ball game too yesterday. But the point of the matter is, we are that easily caught off track. We get so excited, think about it, about a style of blue jeans... I'm not, I don't have a problem if you like a certain style of blue jeans. I like the ones that somebody buys for me. That's my style. <laughs> but I'm just saying that's the way we are. We're that way naturally. That's not a slam on you. That's just our nature. By nature, we are that way. That's why we have to be constantly reminded of these things. We're all that way. You married men know when your wife goes, i got to get my hair done again. Or if you live... Well, I was going to say I got to get my hair did again, but you get the point. It's always something, isn't it? It's always something, and it invades our lives twenty four seven, three hundred sixty. As the president said, you know the thing. It constantly invades our lives. Now, Paul was a man who could talk about contentment. I think the reason is, is one word, priorities. The reason we struggle with contentment, I think, is because of our priorities. Paul could say he could find a contentment in abundance and in poverty, in comfort and in suffering. 
Because Paul is determined that what matters to him is the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the cross, the gospel. All these other things are far lower on his list of priorities. We all have priorities. You're like, i got to get a shower before we get to church this morning. Nothing wrong with a list of priorities. But Paul had a list that put all of those other things much lower. Maybe we should examine our priority list. Do we have things that are more important to us than the gospel? Do we have things that are more important to us than our faithfulness to the truth? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have things that are more important to us than our loyalty to the very word of God? Certainly our priorities are going to differ based on our stations and stages in life. However, our top priorities must be the same to avoid division and disaster. As we said before, Paul has no time for the circumcision party. That is those that join Moses and Jesus together. He even wrote Titus and said, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul, Barnabas, and the Jews, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? (laughs) How much exposition do we need on that? It's simple enough, right? It's simple. Unless, of course, you're not thinking clearly as fear will make you do. And folks, we're not given the spirit of fear. That's the spirit of timidity but of power, love, self-control, which is a sound mind. John prophesied to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, you may, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Proverbs 29, 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. But here's the good news. The story was shared with us, and it's good news for us because Peter was human. I'm glad Peter's human, because I'm human. How many of you are human? Well, not all of you, apparently. I'll contact men in black and let them know. (laughs) Now to paragraph number three. This is Paul's conversation with Peter. He says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. All right. So it's like he's talking straight to Peter here. What does he mean? Not Gentile sinners. Well, when he says Jews, what he's saying is we're law keepers, born law keepers. We're Jews. We didn't live outside the law like the Gentiles. Yes, they're sinners, just like Gentiles are sinners, but they grew up keeping the law. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let me try to 
Say that the way we might say it. It's like he's saying, Peter, the one thing you and I have learned is that the keeping the law will not make a single person right with a holy God. That only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So what did we born law keepers do? Well, we believed in Christ, not the works of the law. Because we wanted to be made right with God and we knew that the law wouldn't do it. We wanted to be justified. Even we born and bred law keepers realized that is what Jesus did, not what we do. Which in turn means we did the exact thing that the Gentiles did to gain access to God the Father. So what is the clear implication? Jews and Gentiles are equal in Christ. My buddy Randy Seaver has a great book called The Cross, The Heart of New Covenant Theology. And he writes this, God intended the old covenant to have a condemning, killing effect. It could only grant life to those who kept it perfectly. Since sinful rebels, that's you and I, would not and could not obey it perfectly, it effectively revealed that it was absolutely impossible for sinners to obtain justification through personal law-keeping. By contrast, God intended for the new covenant to justify and give life. Seems clear to me. Did you get it this time? Go like this, rattle, rattle, rattle. Verse 17. Now you got to hold on to this now. Stay with me. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What in the world is he saying? Hear me. He's asking him a question. Here's what he's saying. If we law keepers... All right, look up at me if you would. I want to make sure you get this question. Understand what he's saying. If we law keepers... Watch this now. Forsake or give up on the law in order to be made right with God. Is Jesus leading us to sin... And his answer is an emphatic no. Watch this. Paul repented of his law keeping in order to follow Jesus. What was Paul doing in the name of keeping the law? Was he babysitting Christians or was he persecuting Christians? Answer the question. He was persecuting Christians. When he met Christ on the Damascus road... Did he continue after that? Did he continue persecuting Christians or did he forsake the law and follow Christ? He forsook the law. So Paul is saying, I forsook the law. Look, when you repent of something to grab a hold of something else, you in effect have to let go of that something. Paul said, I sought the law. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Even far beyond my elders, I clung to the law. I sought the law. Look, Paul was Peter's best friend. 
because Paul chased after the law, held to the law, was a, a fanatic about the law far above anyone else that Peter had ever known. And Paul was so in love with that God, in a sense of loving the law, that he had to let go of it all in order to cling to Christ. And Paul is saying, look, I let go of the law in order to cling to Christ. Am I therefore a man? Did Christ tell me to sin? No! But there is now a change in the law. You see what he's asking him? I had to let go of this in order to cling to this. When my wife left her mother and father and clung to her husband. Was her husband asking her to sin by relinquishing her parents in that format? In that dynamic? No. And neither is Christ, Peter, neither is Christ telling you to sin by eating with Gentiles, by not asking them to cling to the old covenant or to give up, to the, give up from the old covenant. Verse 18, another difficult read. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now notice he says, he changes it to singular. If I rebuild. So once again, it's Paul's story. He's the paradigm. He's the model. Paul is saying, if he rebuilds the law again, whether in respect to circumcision, table fellowship, watch it, or anything else, He's a transgressor in doing so. Paul said, I clung to the law. But to follow Christ and cling to Him, I had to let go of that and cling to Christ. Paul said, if I go back to clinging to the law and rebuild that, I become a transgressor. Peter, you're building this up here. You're building the old covenant again. And if you do that, Peter, you're a transgressor. Verse 19. For through the law, I... What's that next word? I died to the law. So that I might... Live to God. In other words, Paul didn't destroy the law. He died to the law. So going forward, he has no conflict with the law. You say, Chris, what about my conflicts with the law? What conflicts? You died to the law. As Paul would later write to the Romans, the law is good and holy. And if there had been a law they could, bring to, they could bring to life, then he would have gone that route. Paul told the Romans, look, if I could have kept on persecuting Christians and putting them to death and inherited eternal life that way, I would have kept on doing it. But I couldn't. I had to cling to Jesus. Jesus alone. 
Somebody say amen. amen. By grace alone, ladies and gentlemen. He writes in Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit to God. Verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the, fle- and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Bill, one, Bill Wither- Witherington, one more time for clarity. The place where the law was abolished or set aside was on the cross of Christ. It was Christ himself taking on the curse of the law who died to the law for all of us. Through the execution of the law's curse on him, inasmuch as Paul or any Christian was crucified with Christ on that occasion... Christ being both representative and corporate head of this group's followers. He or any Christian, listen, also as a result, died to the law. This meant they were no longer under the law's jurisdiction, no longer obligated to keep the law, no longer under the law's power, free from the law's curse and its demands. This is wonderful. It also meant the distinction between sinner and righteous is no longer determined by the Torah, the law. So when Paul says to Peter, he says, we were not Gentile sinners, he's referring to the Old Testament definitions of sinners. Now the definition is based on who's in Christ and who's not in Christ. He has one more sentence, which is beautiful. They now lived in a sphere of influence, namely in Christ. Now we're a part of new creation and now under a new mandate, the law of Christ. Now the final verse, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He died in vain. If I've got to keep any of the law. Now we look at the law. The law is still profitable for instruction, for righteousness. But we look at it through the new to see the old. Peter and Barnabas are guilty of hypocrisy. But notice the harshness of Paul's language. He says they nullified the grace of God. The word nullify is translated a couple different ways. I'll just give you two. In Mark 7, verse 9, Jesus uses it. He says to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Paul is saying, I do not reject the grace of God, Peter, like you're doing. 1 Timothy 5, Paul is laying out to Timothy the rules for taking in a widow. And he talks about taking in women who are too young. And he says they'll incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Paul is saying, I do not abandon the grace of God like I saw you doing, Peter. So what do we take away from this? Number one, be aware of fear. 
Paul will deal with this later when he talks about we are adopted. We are adopted. We need not fear. When you have those days where you're saying, I just don't feel good enough for God. Stop looking at yourself and look to Jesus. Look to the cross. We talked about this at the meeting the other day. You say, but I'm just struggling. Hey, that's good news. You know how many people are not struggling with their sin? It is by the grace of God that you struggle. It is by the grace of God that you care enough. Adoption. We all do it. That's the second thing. We all struggle with hypocrisy. So there's understanding. What else? Another good point of the story is that there's hope. We can all be salvaged. As I said earlier, Paul is Peter's best friend. Can you imagine being Peter? I'd have left Jerusalem too. Everybody's looking at me. And then Paul shows up. Man, he's got a backbone of steel, doesn't he? And there's help. It was read earlier, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, you restorers, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And how do, we, how do we frustrate or nullify the grace of God? Listen to what Paul writes to Colossians. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. Well, how do I go forward then? As ye receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk ye in Him. How did you receive the Lord Jesus Christ? By repentance and faith. So how do you walk forward? By repentance and faith. Now this is going to shock the fire to you, but I sin sometimes. Why did you look away? We all do. We are all hypocrites at times. So you know what I do? I, I, I walk forward the same way I walk in Him, the same way I came to Him. By repentance and faith. I say, Lord, I've learned something today. I have been wrong. And that may be something I've been wrong about a long time and I keep getting wrong. There's my repentance. And I cling to the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. Reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.